Nobody knows their name. They're showing up every day. They're providing for their families, their communities, taking care of even their grandkids and even their grand and their parents. And nobody knows their name. They kind of strip of their identity and they do that for decades and then they just die in poverty. And and so when I think about sustainably fixing poverty, it's just those people and, and thinking, how can you break this cycle? Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. In this episode, we speak with Nellie Chaboy, founder of TechLit Africa, one of Forbes 30 Under 30 for Social Impact and 2022 CNN Hero. She shares her journey from childhood poverty in rural Kenya to raising money to build a school while only a junior in college, bringing computers and training to thousands of children in her home country, and her vision of a world where young girls have enough to eat, a roof over their heads, the resources to go to school, and can grow into women who will be known by their own names. So where do we begin? Uh, I have seen uh, a number of interviews that you've done, and you have a lot to say about TechLit Africa, and I want to ask you about that. But I'm really interested in hearing about um, your own origins and especially your mom. She seems like <laughs> she's been a big part of your life. I mean, everybody, everybody's mother is. Yeah. But you've talked about her a lot in relation to your work. Do you mind sharing a little bit about your mom? Oh, yeah, gladly. Yeah, so my mom is, uh, her name is Christina Cheboy, and uh, She's a mom of four daughters. And so she made it to sixth grade and then drop out. She's the oldest in her family. And so she, before even educating us, was educating her siblings. So her five siblings. And so most of what she used to do was, um, so for most of Kenya, like mostly in the rural area, there are no jobs. So mostly you wake up in the morning, you go look for a job if it's construction. And then also like mostly women, what they do, they either go and work, work in farms, if it's like uh, just daily wage in farms, or sell something by the roadside. It could be vegetables, could be fruits, could be food. And that's what my mom mostly used to do. So whenever it's in season, she'll go sell it. And then if it's, she's selling vegetables this week, then mangoes next week, and then maybe buying and selling goats. And so, um, so for most of my formative years, it was just me and her because my two elder sisters were in school. They were in boarding school, high schools in Kenya, boarding schools. And so since I was in maybe fourth grade up to eighth grade, I was just me and her and my younger sister was really young. And so I kind of got to see her just like really get, I was just really curious, a very curious person. I love studying my, like looking around my environment. And what I constantly saw is that she's working really hard. Mm -hmm. and, and as a child, I had this disconnect because in school you are told if you work hard, things are going to work for you. You're going to have a great life. And I'm looking at my mom and I'm like, she's doing everything right. Why is life, why is life still really hard for us? And she was just, she just used to work really hard. Like, so like she would, sometimes she'd get home at midnight because she was stuck buying vegetables somewhere, or she'll be the only woman driving all the way to the border of Uganda, of um, Ethiopia to buy goats. And then she comes, comes home really late. So I am like, you know, I'm living in poverty, struggling with food. And it's really hard. You're trying to make sense of this. You're trying to understand why am I living in, why am I struggling with food? Why don't I have clean uniforms? Why don't I have nice uniforms? Why don't I have shoes? And you're trying to understand 
but you can't i can't really blame her because hey she's she's not she's working and so that disconnect made me start thinking about just thinking about poverty and and it was more like wow like how does she do it how does she wake up every morning and just work really hard for us not even for herself and still do this for so many years uh so it made me really appreciate her as a person and it made me try to find ways as opposed to trying to figure out what is going on with our life and and why am i living in poverty it was more like how do i elevate the pain that she's going through mm. and um and as a kid i could not i mean i could help her like if she's baking food to sell like bread or chapati or mandazi i could help her do that or i could help her sell the vegetables or i could help her with herding cows but it felt like it wasn't really doing it and so that's why when i learned about um this song i used to sing to her which was like a promise that i learned in school that says my hands are so tiny i can't do anything but when i grow up i'm going to show you the world um when i learned about that song in school i was i, I just came home and i sang it to her and i saw how like it kind of like wiped her tears away it kind of like for a second it brought this moment of relief and so that that is it so i kept singing to her all the time i kept singing to her and that song is a promise on its own right and so yeah. um as i sang to her oh, i just kept thinking like oh wow i can do that maybe when i grow up i can do that so uh and i think that that gave me so much empathy thinking about people's life thinking about if you see someone is struggling in poverty you just can't assume that they're lazy right uh, and just trying like it gave me so much empathy and it gave me so much um this need to really help this like kind of generosity that that i have today as i'm leading tech in africa i think that just that that came a lot from watching her and trying to make sense of my world growing up in you know, in rural Kenya, in poverty. And as you described her and wondering how she could do what she did, not just for you and your siblings, <laughs> but doing it for her own, her own siblings, that's remarkable. How did she find the strength to do that? Because not everybody can. I mean, that's, that's, that's something special. And the crazy part is that it's, that's such a common narrative. That is such a common narrative for not, I mean, her and women like her, most of the women, I think, like I think about even right now, when I think about my hometown in Mogotio, they have there are women who have been there since I was in second grade. That is more than twenty years ago. They they have been there and they're still there until today. And I'm thinking like, what kind of resilience does someone have to show up every day and fight, you know, to provide for their family, to provide for everyone, and yet, like most of them, you know, just that's all they know and then they just die in poverty and and i think when you it really puts a lot of things in perspective being an entrepreneur is hard <laughs> i mean we're not gonna lie about that but then when you compare the the challenges you have as an entrepreneur versus like the kind of resilience it takes for these women to show up every morning for decades and sometimes you don't even know their names because in kenya once you become a mom like you, you kind of like no one calls you by your name it just becomes like so my mom would be mama Nelly, for example right mm. so these women we call them mama mboga like the woman of the vegetables like they sell vegetables to their mama mboga and so these are women who are like nobody knows their name they're showing up every day they're providing for their families their communities taking care of even their grandkids and even their grand and their parents and nobody knows their name they kind of strip of their identity 
and they do that for decades and then they just die in poverty and and so i think i think that is the people i think about a lot when i think about sustainably fixing poverty it's just those people and, and thinking how can you how can you break this cycle can you paint a picture of the place where you grew up for those who don't, you know, who've never been to Kenya and certainly have never been to your, to your hometown. Yeah. So it's a, so it's a small village. And so it's common that you don't have electricity or running water. And so you have a latrine outside, um, you know, as part of the, you know, the homestead. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then, and then most of the most people are subsistence farming. So they they plant crops, maybe maize, which is corn or beans, and then um, what else? And so, as a kid, you wake up in the morning, you have tea, and then you go to school. Sometimes they have food in school. Sometimes they don't. You you come home over the weekend. Like my childhood, most of the times, like over the weekend, I was herding cows you know, taking cows to find grass. So you're herding cows, and so I didn't really get to play with uh, my friends. Mm -hmm. I was spending most of my free time either herding cows or helping my mom at her business. And so I always really craved just playing with my friends, but I couldn't. And so I was always like, I will have a book with me under an acacia tree, which is a common tree there. Mm -hmm. um, I'll just be reading as I'm looking for, as I'm herding the cows. Uh, and that really, I think I was in my head a lot because I was spending most of my time alone. You know, if it's herding cows, if it's helping my mom at her place of business, if it's selling vegetables when she's not around and stuff like that. And so I was, I spent most of my time just thinking, just thinking about, you know, you're just all alone. So you're constantly fantasizing. I'm thinking about, oh, what are ways I could fix poverty? And I'm thinking, okay, maybe I could build a big kitchen so I can feed everyone. Or maybe I could build a nice estate so we all can live well, uh, you know. And then for studying, we didn't have electricity. And so we use kerosene lamps, but mm -hmm. kerosene is expensive. And so I used to go and study in storefronts where they have fluorescent lights outside. And so you could just sit on the veranda and study. Um, yeah. So you were talking about books and being young and herding cows and reading. So in, in some places, access to books is an issue. You had access to some books. Where were you getting the books? What were you reading? What What's a book that you remember that was really important to you as a little? Kid? I think I'll, I'll find just I'll find books um, like my I have I had two elder sisters. So sometimes they'll bring books from their high school. Mm -hmm. So I'll be like in sixth grade and I'll just read like a high school level book. Sometimes oh. just a science book that has all this complicated chemistry in it. I'll just read it. Um, for most of the time, I was trying to kind of make sense, trying to understand. Uh, because I was constantly thinking and I, I kept thinking that do, do does every child worry about this? Does every child worry about providing for their sister or or like like I just I just kept so because I did not travel as in a small village. And so th that question I kept asking myself over and over again. And so books was kind of like the window to the world. It's like, if I find a book, I look through all of it, I read it, I look at the pictures in those books and then I imagine what, like, like there's this book, there's this science book I found when I was in fourth grade. I think it was like a sixth grade science book. And it said like all the things that a house has and it had a vacuum cleaner, I don't know, toaster, microwave. I have no idea what these things are. And I kept thinking, oh, I'll have that in my house one day. Because, so, so it was almost like just a way of trying to 
imagine the world outside of Mogodio. And I guess that's why I really loved reading. So it wasn't like, like very like fancy books. Any book I found, I just took it with me and I just tried to read it. Right. Well, I know you've talked about uh, in other places that you didn't even know what a computer was. I don't know if you were no. exaggerating or if you were being very, no, I, really had I no idea. Oh, right. Um, no, uh, I did not know. <laughs> and so, I, yeah, I, I'm, I know you were introduced to some of this as you got older. I guess that's yes. true for, for any kid, but especially a kid yeah. who doesn't have access to things mm -hmm. like computers. Mm -hmm. um, but you were very curious. That's that's clear. Not every kid is the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah I was really curious. curious. Yeah. yeah, right. So yeah. you were getting these books, you were absorbing this information, and then you were dreaming in your own head. Um, <laughs> but I'm curious, did you have friends when you could, when you did have time to get together with friends and when you were with sisters, mm -hmm. did you talk about any of what was going on in your head? You're, you're kind of imagining how you can change the situation that you and, and friends and others were in. I think... Uh... So I used to talk to my mom a lot because, you know, she'll come home. Uh, and then I think for my mom, I, I, the question is, I think there was this story I really loved that she used to tell me. So there was there's this guy who's on a wheelchair mm -hmm. and, and I kept asking, hey, mom, tell me about, um, you know, Kosuke. And and then he and then she would tell me all about Kosuke's life. So Kosuke was a, you know, was a preacher and. At that point, a very respected person in the society, almost like having like living a decent life. And then my mom was telling me about how when he was growing up, they were really poor. Even the wife was really poor and they were shunned by society. And they just and somehow they've been able to pull up and then now now they're respectable and they have income. And I love that story so much. So it used to be like a treat where, uh, so we don't afford kerosene, but then when I have kerosene, I get to study at home instead of going to the veranda to study. And so it's a one room, you know, but then it's a one room apart, like one room, right? But mm -hmm. then you have curtains to separate where the the tables are and the bed. So my mom is laying in bed trying to sleep and I'm on the, where the tables are trying to read on the kerosene lamp. And I'll tell my mom, mom, please tell me about that story about Kosuke. And then, you know, she will be telling me that story. And then the story was just incredibly sad. And I'm just really crying. I'm crying, but I, so I'm just like, like tears are just falling on the books. And I think the reason I really love that story was because of like, um, just how they made it, right? Even though their life was really sad, they were able to um, kind of like rise and now they have income and, and now they have a really good life. And so I think most of the time when I had questions, it was mostly I was asking my mom hmm. because I was spending most of my time with her. Like at night, I'm not having cows. We are staying at home. I'm asking questions. And so sometimes I'll see things in the newspaper and that's the first person I'll ask. I'll tell mom, hey, is everything in the newspaper true? And then she'll say yes. This time I'd seen someone who was starving, like really, uh, I'd never seen that picture before. Like in Northern Kenya, there was drought and someone was just like very malnutrition. You could see bones. And um, and so I was so saddened by that. I went to her and I was like, hey, so she had no idea what I was asking. I was like, hey, mom, is something in the newspaper true? And then she says, yes, it's true. Why? I was like, ah, oh, nothing. And that, that really, that picture made me so sad. I was like, if if that person is making on the newspaper and they're hungry, why is no one feeding them, right? Why is no one doing anything about it? So I think um, 
I think like I, I would have all these complicated thoughts, but I'll just like kind of like simplify it. Like my mom telling me the story of Koske, according to her, she probably just telling me because I love that story. But for me, it was kind of like kind of soothing, reminding me that no matter how bad life is, it gets better. Asking about the newspaper, it was really like trying to understand this complex world where someone is starving, is on the front of the newspaper and no one is doing anything about that. And yeah. so I think it was it was really hard to kind of like even right now, like even at home, like it's most of my siblings have no idea what I do. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. It's just really hard to to like all these complex thoughts I have, all these ideas I have. It's just really hard to kind of like portray that or explain that to them. So sometimes I just simplify or I don't really do it. So I, I think I was just in my head a lot. And when it comes to like trying to ask those questions, I give people the ambitions I had. I never really did that, but in a way, like you kind of like get a glimpse of it, you know, like through my mom or. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're, uh, you're doing what you need to do to help your mother, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. she's also doing what she needs to do, not just to feed you, but yeah. also so you can go to school. Because another yeah. thing that American audiences don't typically know, and you know this from having spent so much time in the United States now, is this idea about going to, needing to pay to go to school. Yeah. So right. it, and it's it's everything, right? I mean, it's it's tuition, but it's, it may be uniforms as well. And then yeah, it's a lot. Can you yeah. can you it's help? A, yeah, I mean, uh, schools are very expensive because you find uh, people are like a dollar a day, maybe or two dollars a day, are mm-hmm. being asked to pay like three hundred dollars a month like for tuition and then there's also shopping especially high school high school is the most expensive part because even universities are cheaper than high school just for context <laughs> so uh you know you're paying about 300 dollars a month for tuition and then you have to pay for bus fare you have to pay for you know any amenities that, like any things they may need like if it's books if it's calculator uniform and all these things and so you find that most people in school when they go to high school they are constantly sent home for tuition and and so parents you find parents who have accumulated wealth either by buying goats or or cows or or even land once their kids go to high school Mm -hmm. just go like they just start selling If you find like especially when you have like four kids back to back back to back by the time you are on the last kid you don't have anything to send them to school because you're selling your cows you're selling your goats you're selling your land to educate your kids and then but there are no jobs to begin with in kenya so these kids are educated yes they're educated they did well but there are no jobs to begin with so now they're back you know to stay with you or they're just doing uh you know daily like these odd jobs like you know like taxi or farming and so even though the parents were able to build wealth it's getting harder for the kids to build wealth and then the cycle just continues like that i can imagine for you this must have been particularly challenging because it wasn't just the studying which you wanted to do it was also this realization that your mother was working that hard so you could do it and and because you have this sense of uh, responsibility. That's that's what's clear. Is then wanting not wanting to just give back, as we t- say very lazily here, but do something bigger than that. And yeah. so there you are going to school, and you probably were very aware 
that every day you spent in school was at a cost. <laughs> How did you manage to, I don't know, get all yeah, this? Yeah, I was like, I was when I was in high school, particularly. So I knew that if I study hard in school, I have a chance. My idea was like, if I do well out of my primary education, I might get a scholarship. And so then my mom doesn't have to worry so much about educating me. Hmm. I did well, but I did not get a scholarship. So I was constantly sent home for tuition. And I knew that, uh, so I had to catch up because I knew that every time I go home, I'm losing, right. I'm missing school. So I'll ask my classmates to kind of like, um, I'll borrow their notes on their books and then study and bring it home. And then uh, and, and study on the bus ride home or at home when I'm helping my mom make money. Um, and so I always, I always snuck back in. So I'll go back on Sunday when they, when the accountant is not in and then they know until I'm sent home again. They're not like me in that school, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope they like you now. But before we go back to do, that. Yeah. I had to get my education, Sam. I wasn't like just going to stay home. So I just made a plan. I just go home right. and just lay low until Sunday when I knew that the accountant was not in. I just sneak back in, catch up on my studies and then go back. Like, you got to do what you got to do. I wasn't going to miss school because of tuition, so. Right, right. So, okay, so you made it through all this. And then at some point, you decided you were going to go and study elsewhere. And I know you got a full scholarship for this. But that doesn't explain how you sitting wherever you were in that village, going to this school, and tr just trying to make sure it worked out with the accountant every week, how you then developed this idea, well, I think I'll go to school in the United States, and I'll get a full ride scholarship. And, and I mean, so where did this, where did these ideas come to you? How did you find the opportunity? How did you pursue the opportunity? Okay, so I, I'm actually, it's a bit different. So what happened is that I did well out of high school, mm -hmm. like I was the first in we'll go to and there were celebrations in town. But for me, I always had this thing where I, whatever inform, whatever, at a given juncture, I have to do all I can. I have to do everything I can so that it's almost like engineering my own future. I have to do all I can so that if something doesn't go my way, I don't have to look back and say, well, I could have done that. So I really hate regretting. I, I wanna be able to say, wait, well, for example, if I'm applying for a grant, right? Or if I'm, I'll say like, okay, I have to apply. I have to answer the best I can. I have to do all I can so that if I don't get the grant, I want to be able to say that, hey, I do all I, I did all I could and I will not regret, right? And so that has always been how I approach my life. So after I graduated and I was the first in Mogote, I done really well. I did not sit back and say, okay, I've done really well. Let's see what opportunities I get. It was more like, okay, I've done really well. What now? And so what I used to do it's like i'll just everyone i meet i'll be like oh my name is nelly i just got an a my name is nelly so i was kind of marketer in town like just telling everyone until someone heard about it and they were like oh you're nelly who got an a i'm like yeah that's me <laughs> and so then they told me like oh there's this organization like roby that take you know girls like you and help them to apply to scholarships in the u.s and so that person linked me up to this organization in Nairobi so I went to Nairobi and I applied but then when I got there they'll only give you four schools to apply to right they'll try to match your personality to a school so I was given some four schools and they'll take around 200 200 girls right but then only 30 people will get scholarship 
So I was looking at a 15% chance of getting a scholarship. Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking, how can I increase my odds? So I used to go back. I'll go back to them and be like, hey, can I get more school? Can I get more schools? So I ended up applying to 20, which is five times what people are located to. They, they just told me like, hey, we don't have any more schools for you. I was like, okay. So I started asking the people around me, like, what schools did you apply to? And then I'll apply mm-hmm. to that school as well. And then I ended up applying to 20 and I got rejected in all of them again 15 percent chance of getting a scholarship right i got rejected in like maybe rejected partial scholarship so it doesn't matter and that what happened now is that one of the school uh had an ex had a scholarship like uh the person they they gave the scholarship to had visas issues they could not go and so the office the office was like what about nelly so all of them were campaigning for me to get the scholarship because <laughs> because they saw like oh she was so resourceful she kept trying to get more schools and and that's really how i got the scholarship wow <laughs> yeah. uh, okay so then you you decide to actually leave because it's still a decision each one of these things you did was a decision on your part it was really about agency yeah um so then you you uh took the scholarship and you went over and you studied at um I, I'm, oh wait, Augustana. Augustana, yeah. Um, and when you entered, was it to study math initially, or what? Did it matter? Were you just it's looking for an liberal, opportunity to learn somewhere? It's a liberal arts college, okay. and I wanted. Um, I mean, I have a whole. Like I always wanted to be a pilot, and then when I flew for the first time, I just hated it. And I was like, I'm not going to be a pilot. <laughs> well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When was this? Was that to actually fly to the school, or? Would, were yeah, you it was my first time to fly. It was a 16-hour flight, like eight-hour flight to Amsterdam, then another eight-hour flight to Detroit, and then another one-hour flight. And so it was a very long flight. And, <laughs> and I realized, like, because I had no experience, I just imagined sure. just flying, you know. I, I think as a kid, thinking about what I want to be when I grow up, mm-hmm. a pilot seemed really nice because then I could travel, I could see the world, I could... Um, especially given that I, I always wanted to, stream, to like, look at what life is like out there, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but then when I flew the, for the first time, I realized that is not what I wanted to do. And and I think that was just really sad. That was really sad because I kept thinking like, if I was a kid in America, I would have known what flying was like. Like maybe I would have flown or I, like I would have known. Hmm. But because I grew up in Mogotu, I've had this dream for more than 10 years, but I had no experience like I had no idea what being a pilot was like. I was actually looking for a pilot in Mogotu. So I started asking everyone, do you know a pilot? Do you know a pilot? And the closest I got is that there was a guy who knew someone in the army who may know like a pilot in the army. And I kept calling that guy, hey, do you know the guy who may know a pilot? So I kept looking for a pilot all my life. And so I did I did do my research. So it was it was almost just I think it, when I got here, it was extremely sad. First of all, I realized like, hey, not everyone has to worry about food. Like I realized the abundance here. I realized all the opportunities that kids have here. And then, so I was constantly thinking like, okay, how do I bring this back to my community? And right. then on top of that, I'm trying to find a new career now because, okay, so I've had this dream for so long. I have no idea what to do. And then I thought about being a doctor. And then I heard about the cadaver lab and I was like, okay, maybe not that. And so it, then I did, uh, I came across chemistry. I was like, okay, maybe I can do chemistry. I was good in chemistry, but I wasn't, I was still kind of trying to find what I could study. Yeah, I, but this this idea about abundancy is something I've heard from people before. <laughs> uh, 
even my in-laws talking about the first time they went from from Asia going into a U.S. grocery store and seeing so much stuff everywhere. <laughs> but that must have been even the, even a bigger version for you because you're coming from this village, right? You're flying here. You're taking this ridiculously long flight. And then there you are at college and you see all this stuff, plus all the stuff in the heads of Americans who are used to that abundance. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you to experience that? Uh, I think it was, it was definitely eye opening. Mm -hmm. I think it was just, I think it, it became a continuous theme that, uh, for example, when I discovered, so I, I did chemistry for three years and then I discovered computer science and mm -hmm. the software engineering field. I did not know much about it. And so I took an introduction to programming and I just fell in love with it. And, and so I was like, okay, maybe I, I may, maybe I'll go ahead and do this. And and in that class, I really struggled. I really struggled with typing. I don't know how to type. I really struggled even Googling, like all these things. And I kept, as a way to give myself solace, I kept saying, hey, Nelly, you made it all the way to America, from the village to America. The reason you are struggling is simply because you grew up in Mogotio. And, and that, I mean, I was, supposed, I was supposed to be giving myself solace, but that actually made me extremely sad. It was, it just made me realize, like, it didn't matter that I made it all the way to America. I'm still struggling with technology. What about people who are in my community who may never leave? And so I think for me, it was constantly, it was almost like this juxtaposition of the things that I, of the things that the opportunities that we're not having growing up in, in such a village and, and just how far behind we are because of that. And so it was almost, it was almost just painting the two pictures. So like I resented America, no, or I or I felt like Mogotio was less than it was more like, okay, which of these opportunities can I actually implement? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You were already kind of Yeah, I'm just thinking out of, like, okay, okay. Right. Yeah. An equation so I, can, I can't action. take the baseball, but maybe I can take the computers or <laughs> right. Okay. So you're going through and and for some uh, international students, um, they're going back home occasionally. Were you here and then stayed, or did you fly back and forth, or so? Okay, I had a lot of things. I mean, immediately, I, I mean, I, I got here and I got a, a work study program, minimum wage job, and mm. I mean, I had income, so immediately I had to leave, like, uh, get my family out of poverty, find ways to relocate them from the shack I grew up in into a more decent living. So. I I worked for one year, saved enough money to fly back home and, you know, move them out, like buy furniture or that, pay the deposit and move them out into. So I flew home the first time a year later. And then um, then I went back again I, another year also. So I used to, I, I never used to go back in the summer because in the summer I could work more hours, like 40 hours a week as opposed to 20. And that meant I would have more income. And so I tend to go home during winter break or spring break when I, it was only a week or two weeks long. And you were uh, obviously helping your family to, you know, make a change uh, during yeah, that. Yeah, it was more, more like a brand. I just like moved. So because I grew up in a shack that I slept right. on the floor all my life, the roof would just like it will leak. And so when it's raining, it will flood. The, like the beddings would get flooded. Right. And so it was... I needed to, like, I had income and mm -hmm. I had responsibility to move them out of that house, get them in a place where there's electricity, you know, decent 
living, uh, you know, nice furniture, even a TV, you know. And so that's something I had to do. It's no question. Sure, sure. But then the other question was like, okay, now that I've moved them out of poverty, I was sending money home every month for rent, for water bills, for electricity. And, And I realized that was not sustainable, right? And so I was constantly looking for what else can I do? Can I do to like enable them to make their own money? Right. And so, so I was constantly thinking. So when I went home the second time, I realized, well, I could build a school. And <laughs> I saw my, 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 my sister was teaching at a school and I was like, wait, I could, I could build a school. You know, this, this building is very simple. Uh, I'm a Kenyan in America. I want to build a school. How hard it would be to fundraise for that. So I just thought it would be easy. <laughs> so, so what happened? Did you, did you try to do a crowdfunding effort or something for a school? <laughs> did yeah it was terrible i only raised three hundred dollars <laughs> yeah well you're not alone crowdfunding efforts are tough stuff so you raised some money and then didn't i guess you didn't build that school is that right I did, oh i did i did build a school so I, yeah oh yeah i built a school when i was a junior in college and so i was so sure i was gonna raise money it was a nuts i was like i'm just gonna do it so i I had a contractor to start building the school and I was like, okay, I'm going to go back to America. I'm going to do a fundraiser and then I'm going to, you know, and so they were on the ground working and then I'm supposed to be sending money. I do, I make, I, you know, do a GoFundMe fundraiser. I only raised $300. And so then I had, I had two options, like have them stop, right. Or find other ways to make money. Uh, and I was like, okay, let me see what else I can do. So I started picking up extra shifts. I started asking other international students, like, hey, can you give me a loan for $500? Ask around, I'm like, okay, I'll pay you back, you know? And so I was able to, I think most of them gave me the loan because it was a negligible amount for them. And so that way I ended up raising enough money to start the school. And then I just paid them. I just How much did you raise for the, for the school? I just needed like, uh, I needed like 4,000 which is which is a lot for a college student but not a lot of money right and then you built a school is this close to the community where you grew up or what yeah yeah i built i built the school uh the school i built the school in 2015 when i was a junior in college launched it my senior year and um you know right now the school is a is a four-story community center like it's so big yes and this is serving what kids from like yeah it's it's a whole school like from pre-k you know all the way to sixth grade right now yeah i i'm also imagining what this must be like for you but also for the people who are who are your neighbors um whether they knew you or not right the people in the community so uh nelly leaves and maybe they know her or maybe they just know her by reputation then she shows up three years later and she's built a school what kind of what kind of conversations were you having with people in the community who saw somebody go to the states come back and build a school that must have been pretty amazing i think most of them they, they uh i think we're definitely uh, a success story we're definitely like you know you know how i i lived my life like asking about uh uh, I lived my life asking, asking about, you know, that family cause gay, like, Hey, what is, you know, that guy, what his life was like? I think we are that now we've become the story of hope, you know, of like, Hey, like mm-hmm. poverty as an inspiration day, like our story, like that's what people are telling. Everyone is just telling about like, Oh, that family, they were nobody's like, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, so I think, um, 
I think I think definitely in that part is such an honor because we, we you just hear like when we come by like people know us right they they saw how just like a single mother with four girls yeah you know they're like, they're like so people people constantly tell that story and I, sometimes I get to hear as they're telling the story uh, or they just just gives a lot of people a lot of hope I think that's what I've seen there are many people. Uh, everywhere, all over the world, different circumstances, different economic yeah. position, who are either told by others or tell themselves, uh, yeah, but I can't do that. It sounds yeah. like you almost didn't believe that word can't existed. <laughs> no, I did not. I just, sent you a, I just sent you a picture of this school just for context. I don't know if you can see it. I'll take a look Thank at you. it. Thank you. Um, and so you, you just went ahead and did it. And yeah, yeah. I think and that, that school actually became a reference. It became a reference for the things that I took on. I just started having a lot of um, belief in the things that I can accomplish. I believe that if I put my mind into something, I can will it into existence. And, and then the school became a launching ground for so many projects. And so one of those projects is Techlet Africa. Yeah. So, so help us with the transition from building a school <laughs> where a lot of people would just say, okay, I'm done. I'm, I, you know, that's a wonderful thing. Now I'm going to go and make money. You didn't do that. So you, you had to finish your senior year apparently, right? So you went yeah. back and you finished school and then, then what? Yeah. So I finished. So when I, dis I discovered computer science, my junior of college and I mm -hmm. fell in love with it. And so I dropped, I was on track for a chemistry degree. I dropped that my chemistry major I only had one year of scholarship left. So I got a computer science degree in one year. I just crammed all my classes. You know, I had taken some of it for my math requirement. I had taken them through chemistry. So that was easy. Mm -hmm. So I got my degree in one year, but I could not get a job as a software engineer because, you know, I'll go into interviews. Most of these interviews are remote and you're told to solve a function, but I could not type, right? I can solve a function on a piece of paper, but I don't know what touch typing was. And so I kept failing interview after interview. So I got a job as a data, doing data entry. So I got a job doing data entry. And in that, I, my boss did not have words on the keyboard. Like it was just a keyboard with no words on it. And that was so intimidating. I was like, wait, how, how are you doing that? Like, how are you looking and all that? That's when I learned about touch typing. Right. And I I felt so, it was very stressful. Like I, I kept thinking that, okay, my liability, I'm typing really slow. I'm gonna get fired any moment. So anytime like my boss would come and I need to show him something, I'll just sweat and shiver. Like it, it not really helped me there. <laughs> so I'll just get so, so it took me like another six months of learning like every night touch typing before I could, get a person interview with a software engineer. So all this struggle that I'm going through, it's just, I'm just constantly being reminded how far behind I was when it comes to technology, simply because I grew up in Mogotia. Mm. And so I already had a school, right? The school was running for a year there. And I, I realized that, hey, how can I, how can I start teaching kids in, you know, in my school and the community? How can I, how can I start teaching them touch typing, teaching them technology? And so I started like asking around for old computers. I'd ask my, you know, my workmates, I'd be like, hey, do you have an old laptop that I could, you know, take to my school and teach the kids? And they'll be like, yeah. And so I collected a few computers. I got about like 10 in the beginning and I flew home two years. So I was in the corporate world for two years. I flew home. I brought 10 computers with me in my bag. 
um and and i had such a great idea i was like okay i'm gonna bring these computers i'm gonna set up a computer lab at the school and then it's gonna be open to the public and people are just gonna be coming there they're gonna be learning you know it's just gonna be so great so and then i also met my co-founder tyler i met him at this job so at this time we had been dating for two years so he was also flying to kenya to meet my family um yeah, so so we, we go to Kenya, we have 10 computers with us. He was just kind of helping because he was there. Uh, we set up a computer lab. And then when he came to Kenya, I think for him, he just like, he was so shocked. Like he did not have internet. Like he was using mobile data, but it kept dropping. And he was looking at, you know, he was looking at people like there in the community. And most of them like don't know what a computer is. They were struggling using a computer. And then for him, he's a self-taught self-taught engineer. And so for him, he was like, like that, that kind of like it made him gave him such a big realization. He was like, I have grown up with computers. He grew up like programming calculator games. And so for him, it, it kind of like it became so clear that he needed to also do this. So I I was just going to teach computers, and then he just realized, like, oh wow, I need I need to do something about this. Anyway, so we set up a computer lab. We were only gone for two weeks because we have to go back to work. And I'm thinking like, okay, this computer is going to be used all the time. We go back to America and no one is using the computer lab. You know, no one is coming to the computer lab, you know. And and that that just made me so sad. I was like, what is going on? Like, this is such a wonderful resource. Why is no one using it? Right. Um, and that's what led us to quit our jobs and go back to Kenya to figure out exactly why is this not being used. And um, yeah. So well, that's, that's a that's a big, bold leap. So you, <laughs> the two of you just decided that's it. We have to go back. We saw well, the problem. Well, we went skydiving for our first date. So I don't know. We just. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so, was... <laughs> so then you decide to quit your jobs. You go yeah. back to Kenya. Yeah. And you there are 10 computers in there right then at that point. Yeah, so they were, yeah, they were 10 in computers. In the school that you built. <laughs> yes, in the school that you built. So that school was, made everything so easy because we already had kids, you know, it was already being used by the community. And mm -hmm. so it was such an easy thing to set up there. And, and so we go back and then we also bring another 10 computers with us. Now we have 20 when we go back the second time. This time we were there for five months. Mm -hmm. And the goal for these five months was to figure out why are these computers not useful? So we were thinking that uh, people will start like look at the computer. They will start like you know looking around, start learning programming, and then maybe we can introduce them to jobs in our networks in Chicago, and then they'll have jobs, and then boom, poverty fixed. But it was not happening. So we went there, and this time now we were actually leading the classes. So we we were working with adults. We want to teach them like WordPress, how to build websites. We're teaching them all these things. But no one, uh, they're not, you know, they're not coming back. They're coming back today. Tomorrow is a different group coming, a different. We were struggling to even have three people show up like every day. We kept thinking, you know, we're startup founders, right? We kept thinking like, we just need growth. We only have three people now. We just need to have four people ne next week and then five people next week. And that is like that a three percent, whatever the growth rate is. But it was not happening and it was so frustrating. We just kept, it was really disheartening. And we went even as far as finding a job, like someone in Chicago gave us $200 to build them a website. And so 
we divvied up the work and paid the people you know who are coming to the computer lab to do this website so learn how to do wordpress and then if, if there's no job they could use the time to learn uh, and then they'll just they'll just come and then we'll do most of the work and then pay them and it it really was it just showed how hard it was for someone to go from never using a computer before to making money online like they were it was just so hard but meanwhile we had kids kids were just right there just trying to see a computer 60 of them they were just they were just around at the school all the time <laughs> so it and sounds so, like the adults the adults were having trouble making this transition but the kids were just naturally curious just like you were and yeah, yeah. They, were just, they would come they would come and they'll just like hang out even though they don't get to see a computer or touch a computer they just hang out at the school they were so distracting and so we were like okay let's just give you three computers this other room and then you explore and then as we figure out what to do with these adults so we have like we have a nice polish room with like 17 computers on this side waiting for the dust to come only three of them are showing up while on the other side we have three kids and no 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 three computers and almost like 60 kids trying to use the computer so the math was not adding up you know <laughs> Anyway, after a month of doing that, and, and the kids were just growing in numbers, like 60, 100. Then we realized, okay, let's just like maybe do kids half the time and then do adults half the time. And then now more kids were showing up now. <laughs> At that time, it was like, you only have three hours and then you have like 300 kids. Like, okay, what do you do? You know, so <laughs> they're pretty much like, you know, it just became really clear that this product was meant for kids. Like, uh, um, you know, it was not, it was kind of sad that, okay, with kids, you can't get the impact immediately. You can't get them making like money online immediately because they're kids. But given just how much they wanted it and the impact you could have, like you can imagine getting to them when they're this young and teaching them these skills. By the time they're adults, this, this is second nature to them. And that uh, by the end of five months, we had seen almost 1,200 kids. And it was very clear that uh, we needed to work with kids. Mm -hmm. Something else which was very clear was at a given day, we had an equal distribution of boys and girls. But in terms of the recurring users who was coming back day after day, they were mostly boys because girls were helping with chores at home. And when I was growing up, if we had something like Techlit, I would not have been able to attend because I was herding cows or at the kiosk selling vegetables. So boys are, boys were free, you know, they were not, they had more free time and so they would come to the computer lab, but girls were either helping with their siblings or herding cows or selling vegetables. Mm -hmm. And so to ensure equal access, we needed to go to schools. And that was the end of 2019. We realized, okay, we need to go to school because that's where this equal distribution, we're going to get to both boys and girls. Um, and then it's also, it's an existing infrastructure, right? So you just need to bring the computers there. Uh, so it was such a high note in 2019 and then COVID happened, schools were closed for a whole year. <laughs> yeah, and so we just, uh, we just waited. I'm curious, a lot of people who start organizations, they run into other forms of resistance. So initially, you were starting this almost like a business and you were pitching it to adults and the adults just weren't there yet. But the kids were ready to go, just like you were when you were a kid, clearly. Yeah. But then you also have this other thing. When you try to take something that you know is working, like serving now 1,200 kids 
Absolutely. And you just want to bring that into other schools. It's it seems so obvious. That's of course the right thing to do. But did the schools or the community or the adults or the government, did anybody say, oh, I'm sorry, we can't do that here? Or were they all willing in opening their doors to this? Okay, so we, okay, so at the end of 2019, uh, we were ready, but we did not go to schools yet. Hmm. COVID happened and then right. uh, the schools were completely shut down. So for a whole year, we could not do anything with Techland Africa. We just waited. We just kept having board meetings and those board meetings were so sad. <laughs> Why? <laughs> yeah, no, nothing to report. You can't even fundraise. What are you going to fundraise on? It was, it was almost like, okay, so how are we keeping the dream alive? I don't know. It was... <laughs> anyway, um, so, and then the schools, the schools now reopened. So when COVID happened, uh, all of Kenya, the schools, no kids, the kids are not going to school. Right. Kenya lost a year in terms of education. And so in 2021, May is when we started going to schools again. Mm-hmm. And that's when we started going to schools. And that was our, that has had its own set of challenges that we're working, working on, but that, that is the current product that we're working with. So since 2021, you know, we have been going to schools and then in those schools is where we teach all these skills, like essentially how to be a digital native, you know, how right. to learn, how to use resources online to network, get a job, uh, the things that will enable them to, once they graduate high school to actually secure a job remotely. So once they open the schools, it sounds like they were also open to you. Yeah. Yeah. So the challenge, the challenge has always been and continues to be that the kids love the product, right? This is the best part of their day coming to the computer lab, but the stakeholders don't quite understand what it is what we are doing. So maybe the teachers or like the administration don't understand. And then we have a, another challenge where, because, because our product, our service is like, we are in schools every single day. We are hiring teachers. There's a lot of costs related to that. And so we cannot keep fundraising for that because if we keep fundraising for those schools, it's going to be really hard to grow. Mm-hmm. So instead we charge the parents. So the parents pay about a dollar a month, which is not a lot of money, but it's really hard to charge someone who doesn't understand what you're doing. (laughs) (laughs) So biggest difference is that we have these kids who love the product, but then the stakeholders and the parents don't quite understand and they'll be okay with it as long as they don't have to pay for it. But now they're paying for it now. And so it's a lot of uh, education on our part, trying, figuring out ways to educate the market, the stakeholders, mm-hmm. um, so that we can continue to be in these schools. And this was really effectively when the expansion occurred, um, started 2021, May of 2021. And- oh, May of 2021, we did not, no. 21 was just like, we, we so we, we had some money that we had fundraised. And so, we just like kind of bankrolled it. We paid the teachers from the fundraising dollars that we had. And it was fine because we needed to be in schools. We needed to have a product that we can actually go to other schools and sell. And so in the beginning, we just onboarded a few schools and used that to figure out the curriculum. How, in- how, how, how much had you raised? And did you raise that in the, raise that in the United States or in yeah, Kenya no, or throughout the region? Had, I don't know, probably had like, Seven thousand dollars didn't have a lot of money. Okay, but it was still enough to do what you needed to do, at least initially. Yeah, but then that also involves shipping the computers, which is very expensive. Right. right. Um, 
like 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 shipping a computer easily like easily 2000 like only for like 50 computers so you can imagine you want to get computers and we don't have like 7000 was not a lot of money given that and, you have to ship the computers very costly and these are computers that were um you were repurposing right they were used equipment that you were then i guess putting in your own operating systems or something like that so you, yeah, you were doing yes, this yes, very so. economically but you know <laughs> yeah, making so it possible yeah, we work with companies, they are upgrading their IT, so they have old equipment, and then we'll bring it over to Kenya. And then in Kenya, we had a, we had modified Linux, which is an open source operating system. And then we've kind of we kind of optimize it to run for old machine run on old machines. So we'll get these computers which are about four years old, and then we'll have our operating system will run for as much as even up to 12 years. So we kind of like get eight years of uptime here. Um, right. As long as they're not broken, right? If it's just an old machine that works fine, then we can get a few more years of use. Then like for a corporate worker, four years is so old. For us, 12 years is just perfect. And so we kind of got a lot of years out of it. Right. Well, and they were also learning things, even using those, like you talked about, young kids are learning touch typing, not just interacting yeah. with the computer, but even very basic skills that they can apply to whatever equipment they get or yeah. have access to in the future. So you, they're learning things really early now. And oh, they're learning, they're learning how to build websites, they're learning Python programming. It's right. really cool that's all they get to do. It's just such an honor to see what I've come to realize just like how no matter how complicated they, these things are, is like if you find ways to teach to these kids in a very repetitive and almost like fun way mm -hmm. they learn so much and then we have one of the benefits that we have seen is that they learn a lot better as a group you know you get a, a class of students and you see them every two days and they just when they go out there they're talking about it they come here and they practice and so they're quickly they're able to learn very quickly as opposed to like teaching one kid at a time that's what i've come to see as well when did you realize that what you were developing was was going to really grow fast and that was going to have the impact it's it's clearly having now and get the recognition that it's getting now? Was there a tipping point somewhere? No, 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 no way. I, no, it does. No, it's just so hard. It's. <laughs> I don't know. It's I, I think like only entrepreneurs understand how this this how hard this thing is, right? What's the hard, so you just, what's the hardest part for you? The part that you least anticipated? I think it's I think for me actually it's it's just how incredibly high the highs are and then and then how lows the lows are, the variation like up, down, up, down all the time all the time it's just like and then it just gives you a lot of doubt you're just like does it even matter am i actually making a difference you know it, i think it's uh it's almost like the equivalent of like you are in a bathtub and it's so dark and you're just sitting there and you don't want to leave the bathtub and yeah. it's like what is it that it's gonna get you out of that bathtub and i don't think it's like it's never the recognition. It's never the all these like CNN heroes. It's never like all these accolades. It's really the vision that you have in the world that once you succeed, this thing will be happening. Is that vision? And then any kind of indication that that vision is about, it's 
we're getting there, right? So it's are like, you, are you are you seeing that now when we, when you go back and you work with the kids in these schools? Because yeah, how, how many kids that. now are you touching through this program? I think about six thousand. Yeah. Yeah, I think you. I yeah, it happens. So for me, I I really especially. So like what I love doing is spending time with the kids and teaching them. But then when you're running an organization, you have all these other things you have to do, right? And so for me, when I when I get to this point where it's just, I am just so incredibly sad, you know, it's so hard. I just I just go and spend time with the kids. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna take a break. I'm not gonna look at my emails. I'm not gonna look at my phone. I'm just gonna go spend a whole day with these kids and just like teach them this new skill or observe how they're learning. And then I just get, you know, excited again. I get rejuvenated to like tackle all these other challenges that you know you end up running into. And the funny thing is that the magnitude, like whatever, whatever the issue is, the magnitude of the issue doesn't really match the magnitude of the reaction. You may have something that will kill you the next day, will kill the organization, but you're just fine, you're not bothered by it. And then you have something very minute, something very small, something very negligible, and that is what like, crushes you and just knocks you down. <laughs> so it's always like, it's always a roller coaster of what, what really affects you and what doesn't. <laughs> so what, what does sustain you? Because you, you're you're continuing to grow this thing, and I'm sure you have a longer term vision for what it looks like. So, what is that vision, and what's sustaining you towards that vision? I think is I think constantly it's just the contracts of what the challenges I had breaking into technology, the challenges I had even you know even getting my education here in America because and then seeing that these challenges that I have I am I had. Those challenges that I had is not going to happen for these kids because you know they are like in third grade or fourth grade, and they are learning touch typing and they are learning how to code and they are learning and they are growing up with technology. Being able to see that I've been able to rewrite my story within like a decade or two, and then and then seeing that, you know, and and then and then so you compare that and then since I'm in Kenya a lot, you're constantly reminded of just the challenges and the and poverty that is going on. And so it kind of like snaps you back to reality. Like when you're worried about someone who replied to your cold email, like, you know, people, like people are still living in poverty here. People are still, you have women who have been showing up to the kiosk selling vegetables for two decades. Like, <laughs> come on, right? So I think, uh, I think a combination of all those things in that, like we have a chance to sustainably fix poverty, break the cycle. And then it's like you're seeing that that's kind of happening because these kids are just, they're doing so much better. They're becoming really technical and we just can't wait for them to, you know, be at the right age. And then we can start trying to see if we can connect them to jobs all over the yeah. world. Um, you mentioned recognition before, and I know recognition can be both amazing and fleeting, but it can also be an emotional roller coaster. And so you received this award, the CNN Heroes Award, and that's a lot of... Um, uh, visibility. Uh, but I don't know how, how sustained that is because it's one of the things that's amazing about that is that the old line that I know you've heard about 15 minutes of fame, but the reality is you're working every day for these kids and it's making an impact or you wouldn't be doing it. It's really a big deal. Um, mm -hmm. And it's wonderful that, that CNN recognized this. Uh, for people who don't know how that kind of thing happens, but also what impact it has 
on people like yourself, other founders and organizations like yours. Can you talk a bit about that? I understand was it in fact a college classmate or something who nominated you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, so what, where did, what, what happened? What is this all about? And what has it meant to you and, and to the organization? It's, uh, it's a very simple process, actually. So um, I had no idea that it existed. And so a college, a college, you know, someone I went to college with nominated us for it. And then, you know, and then I got a call from them. And then we just went through the, you know, vetting process. And then um, that's all there is to it, really. Like, you know, they read your story and then they do a, a little bit more vetting and then they come to the ground and, and do the video. And then, and so every year they select about like 15 to 20 heroes. Mm -hmm. And then uh, around fall is when they name the top 10, you know, CNN hero. And those are the people that you vote for. Mm -hmm. And so you have one month to ask for votes and rally as many votes. And then the one with the most votes wins. And you it's said not, something. It's not, that, it's not that easy. No, it's a lot of anxiety, though. But <laughs> right. I was going to say it's an emotional roller coaster. Even before you went, even after you went, and you said something in one of these videos about vote for us, uh -huh. which yeah. I think is really meaningful. So you mm -hmm. didn't say vote for me. Uh -huh. You said vote for us. You were talking about voting for the organization. Yeah. So there was there was a bit of thinking there. So, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it wasn't even the organization. When you're saying vote for us, do you mean just? tech lit do you mean did the people that you're saying okay so I'll, I'll uh, okay so with that so when when i was found out on the running for the for the cnn hero of the year mm -hmm. i did not think i had a shot at it like i was like there is no way that i'm going to win that and and so and i just like, said not to do anything about it and so three days passed and i told tyler I am so happy. I get to take my mom to New York. It's so great. And then Tyler tells me like, why do you think you can't win this? And then I snapped out of it. I was like, okay. I was like, okay, I have to do something. Then I have to, like, I have to find out how I can win. And so something I've learned during my entrepreneurial journey is that just because you feel like you deserve something doesn't mean you'll get it. Just because you feel like you need money, no one is going to give you money. Right. And so, and so I had to think about like, how can I get people to vote? How can I? And so what I did is I spent 29 days. I had like 32 days of voting. I kind of lost three of them just thinking I'm not going to win. The remaining 29 days, I did a countdown and every single day I woke up in the morning and I thought about what am I going to share today? that will get people to vote. And so I woke up in the morning and I'll think about my story, the organization story, the reason that we are doing this. And it will take me like even four hours to think of something to post. By the time I post, I'm just really exhausted, you know, and then the day is over. And that was my, my time for those 29 days. And um, along the way, I think it, we got a lot of people because it's a very simple ask. It's only 30 seconds and you're asking people to vote. And, and as you know, for any organization, you always want to get that activation point, right? For most of them, it's like a donation, like they donate once and then you engage them. And then, but for, for us, we got an opportunity to get a very simple activation point, which is like 30 seconds of their time. They vote, they come back tomorrow, they vote and they get to follow our story and they get to, and then we're going through this journey together. We have no idea if we're going to win. And so I think 
I ended up enjoying the process a lot more than I thought I would. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and I ended up coming up with really interesting posts. My favorite is, um, I think it was like day, day eight when I said like 10 years ago, uh, a reporter had a story about a girl who had done really well in high examination, but I, I had no chance of higher learning because her family had absolutely nothing. He came to do a story, uh, hoping that someone will hear my story and help me. So when he saw the CNN hidden nomination, he came looking for me. He went to the kiosk by the roadside thinking that he would find me there, but the kiosk was nowhere. Asked about me and then was shown, you know, my four-story community center, went to the schools and saw five-year-old coding. And he started calling everyone, telling them about what he saw then and what he's seeing now. And then I end the post saying that, reminds me a lot of what Bill Gates said, most people overestimate what they can do in one year, but underestimate what they can do in 10 years. Um, please vote for us and all that. And so that took me a while to write, but but the point is that like that was the kind of post I was doing every single day. And, and, and we got so many people, we got so many people to get invested. And so when, when the event happened at the end, everyone, who was voting, who was following the story, felt like this was their win. And so it's like, you've gotten all these people kind of like joining the movement. Um, and that, that was one of the best things. And then of course, like, I had no idea I was gonna win. And then like all this, the dream I've had all my life for to show my mom the world, like <laughs> that just happened as well, you know? You know, being able to have my mom join me on stage, the world getting to meet her, I just, I felt like all this dream I had as a kid kind of just came to fruition that day in such a miraculous way that I could not have anticipated. Yeah. yeah. Um, you talked earlier about how, especially women, they, um, when they become, you know, adults and then they're, they're, they're working to bring food to their families and then they're no longer called by their names. Yeah. You made a point of calling your mother by her name. Yeah. On the stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So why is that important? I think I just I wanted I wanted people to know her. I wanted people to like, you know, this is she just she's a woman who happens to have four daughters, but you know, she has ambition, she has goals, she's a person who just happens to have four daughters and is working really hard to provide for them. I think she represented all those women that Nobody knows their name who were working really hard to support our societies. Now, um, so you won this award, which is awesome. Again, yeah. congratulations. <laughs> You've also been recognized by Forbes and uh, it, 30 under 30, right? And yeah. So um, lots of things have come as a result of this. You're seeing the impact. I hope uh, you're recognizing the impact you're having. It's certainly the numbers are there. Um, and. What uh, what has it meant to your organization? Some of these things have oh, you been able to find has, more revenue coming in as yes, well as yeah yeah know? we've gotten a lot of uh, yeah a lot of money which is great and then um, also it meant that we can actually finally get salaries so we've been doing all this as volunteers this whole time for four years which is really hard so we're able to start drawing a salary now which is pretty great but what has particularly really helped is that we've become almost an household name in Kenya. And so 
even though the stakeholders, the, the teachers and the parents may not understand what we're talking about yet, they're willing to listen. So before, when we were just like, you know, your kids could be working like could be working remotely, they could be making money, they could be supporting you, they like they don't really understand what you're talking about. But now they're like, okay, okay, now we can listen. Now they can work with us and we get that. So in terms of education, educating the market, it has gotten a lot easier. It has gotten so much easier to find partners and work with the schools. Well, before it was near impossible. It was just really hard to convince the schools that, you know, this program goes a long way towards empowering our kids. So that is like the best thing that has come out of this in that we're able to grow our impact. Right. It, it must be kind of changing the, the adult culture uh, of the country yeah. in a way, because now they're open. If they're open to this, who knows what else they'll be open to? Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. But they understand it. Like, yeah. Right. They don't have to personally experience it to believe someone like you who shows them there's another possibility, you know, the, to invest differently. Yes. Um, I, I, so kind of a final question, which is what would, you know, what would little Nelly reading those books at the Acacia trees, you know, herding the cattle, what, what would she think about all this? Is this anything that she could have imagined? I don't know. I think I, I am very optimistic. I am very like, uh, I, I don't know. I think somehow yes or no, because I was like, my, my ambition was just so big as I look at like, like she will not be surprised. Like, yeah, of course, why no more? <laughs> but on another hand, like she would not have a mental model of what it would look like. Like she would not have no, like she had no reference to what this is, right? And so, um, yeah, it's a combination of no, yes, you know. <laughs> like even as I was thinking about like fixing poverty or like, Things I could think about was just so limited because I've not traveled, you know. You're only like a product of your environment, right? Mm. And so, yeah. But, yeah. And the ambition, kind of, is it as great today as it was then? Um, yes, yes, definitely. Probably less, less ambitious now because it's just really hard. <laughs> but it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> now you know the path and you're like oh my god this is so much work <laughs> so I guess there's something to be said about my agency the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch the world leader in donor intelligence solutions our producer is Jack Frost our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.